For a status, I am Malihe Razozan. This week, we bring you the second part of our interview with Professor Ziad Aburish about the economic crisis in Lebanon, the country's mass protest movement, and the coronavirus outbreak in Lebanon. Ziad Aburish is an assistant professor of Middle East history and founding director of the Middle East and North Africa Studies program at Ohio University. He is a co-director of Jadalia Izin and currently a research fellow at the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies in Beirut. The anti-establishment protesters in Lebanon seem to have recognized clear limitations of street protest. Therefore, they initiated other forms of collective action. They blocked roads, staged massive strikes, and shut down schools and universities. Perhaps a lesson learned from their past protests as well as the uprisings in the region. Can you talk about these actions and their efficacy? I think you've listed them quite uh, effectively. You know, I think past experiences, with the exception of maybe the 2015 garbage protests, when it came down to opposition dynamics or attempts to challenge the status quo, largely took the shape of organizing permitted protests and marches and rallies. But I think the spontaneous nature of the uprising in October 17th onward really took the form of informal actions and direct actions such as roadblocks, strikes, and other such activities. And I think the immediate success of these activities in bringing business as usual to a complete stop, I mean, let's be clear, the banks closed for longer during the initial phase of the protests in Lebanon in October and November than they ever had throughout the 15-year civil war in Lebanon. So when we talk about the emergence of new strategies and their efficacy to say, no, there will not be business as usual, I think we really have to credit and acknowledge the accomplishments of the protesters. I think part of this is a result of learning But the spontaneous nature of the initial phase of the uprising should caution us against this simply being people who were sitting and studying what happened in Iraq, in Sudan, in Algeria in the recent months and and year around which the Lebanon protests took place or look back to 2011. Absolutely, there were lessons learned from 2011 and lessons learned from 2015, by the way, the garbage protests, including lessons learned from the 2016 attempt to break into different municipal councils around the country in which independents and progressives and leftists try to run for elections in those municipalities. So in terms of efficacy, I think they were quite effective initially. The challenge is that at some point, there was both protester fatigue combined with the type of violence that the state deployed and the increasing weight of the economic crises that were taking place in Lebanon that I think maybe whittled down the numbers of people participating. And so I think one of the long-term discussions that's been going on amongst activist groups in Lebanon is how do we complement 
the kind of street actions that we are participating in ourselves or supporting or calling for, how do we complement that with a kind of organization building or institutionalization that doesn't immediately lead to de-radicalization, but that can support these kind of protests and build something up from them. And this is where we started to see the formation of different tents, the formation of different discussions, the desire of different protest groups to target different aspects of the status quo. So some groups were much more focused on the banking sector. Other groups were much more focused on the parliament building and trying to storm it as a symbol of delegitimating the status quo. Other groups were interested in shaming politicians that were seen out in public having dinner or sitting at a cafe. And so there's a vibrant discussion that went on and I think is ongoing now, especially as the ability to turn people out into the streets has decreased over time. The question is, what else do we need to be doing? And those conversations are ongoing in many ways. And we're seeing their results in the creation of informal journalist syndicate. We're seeing it in the creation of new journalism and media platforms. And we're seeing it in uh, the debates that are happening about how to address the current phase of the protests in Lebanon. So is it fair to say that this mobilization in, you know, in Lebanon is leaderless and has a horizontal structure and decision making? I think at the national level, if we were talking about the national level, we, we can't talk about leaders. There is no national leader. But I think we can acknowledge that there are a number of groups that have the capacity to articulate and amplify their analysis and their demands louder and across a broader swath of territory than other groups. I think depending on where in the country you look at, you would need to ask who here is most effective at doing that. If we're talking about North Lebanon, South Lebanon, the Bekaa Valley, Beirut, or elsewhere. In terms of horizontal structures, sure, I think it's fair to say that at the national level and in many places at the local level where these protests manifested, there was a horizontal kind of structure that took place organically. But if we were to identify, let's say, 15 groups that we know have self-identified as being part of the protests, I don't think we can simply claim that they all follow a similar model of organizing themselves, let alone a similar approach to how to work with other groups. And I think this is the big challenge right now. And again, that protesters and activists are very clear on is what is the path to moving from a stage in which simply showing up to the streets and coordinating informally was enough to have an impact to how do we create a broader umbrella structure. And of course, as is the case in any uprising, this can be a very contentious issue. Whether there's a need to create a single organized and unified structure that can encompass all these groups in the first place is an issue of debate, let alone what structure would that take place in. And I think that's what we're seeing in some ways. And the example that I've given to demonstrate this is there are a number of groups that have organized very complex decision-making meetings for the members of their groups, which have featured the tens, if not over 100 members at a time uh, participating in this process. But what we haven't seen yet is an attempt to say, well, let's bring all of these groups together and do it at a larger scale so that 
we engaged in a process, say, for the, I don't know, 2,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 people that could constitute or have constituted the new of this type of mobilization in different parts of the country or in a given city in the case of Beirut. One of the things that I think is also important is to not simply think that history began or these attempts began after October 17th, right? So we talked about the issue of the journalist syndicate and critical journalists trying to create an independent journalist syndicate outside of the confines of the state-controlled journalist syndicates. We talked about the elections to the Beirut Bar Association. But I think it's also important to recognize that we've seen similar struggles in past years, for example, in the Order of Engineers and other professional associations prior to this year and last year. So while I think the uprising has given new impetus and new energy for people to engage in the creation of independent professional associations or labor unions or to try and reclaim existing ones, I think it's also important to recognize that those strategies and debates precede October 17th. Ziad, following 13 days of unrelenting protests, Prime Minister Saad Hariri announced that he would stand down. How would you characterize the Lebanese state response to these protests? It seems like the promise of carrots has not been fulfilled for most part, but the Lebanese state violence against the protesters was much more restrained when compared to the brutal and lethal force used by the states in Iran and Iraq to quash the protests that were concurrently taking place. It appears that the ruling bloc in Lebanon made a decision to simply wait it out and hope that in the absence of clear leadership and defined organizations, the protests will gradually fizzle out. What explains such a strategy and response by the Lebanese ruling bloc? I think it's important to recognize that the political class in Lebanon is able to act cohesively and in a unified manner in certain instances, but in other instances is able to engage in conflict with itself around potential gains for one segment of the political class at the expense of the other. So if we start with the resignation of Saad Hariri, I think we should be clear that some groups came out calling for the resignation of Saad Hariri, for example, the Lebanese forces, which have no real intention at reforming or providing any semblance of a fundamentally different political or economic system in Lebanon. Remind us who Lebanese forces are. The Lebanese forces are the political party under the leadership of Samir Jaja, and they are perhaps one of the primary groups that came out, meaning they were produced and created as a function of the Lebanese civil war and are one of the primary groups that compete for the supposed allegiance and electoral votes of the Maronite constituency in Lebanon. So they compete with the Free Patriotic Movement and the Kata'ab, for example. And if we go back to the intense competition for who would ascend to the Lebanese presidency, most recently, it was primarily between Michel Aoun of the Free Patriotic Movement and Samir Jaja of the Lebanese forces, and Samir Jaja lost out in that competition. And the Lebanese forces and the Free Patriotic Movement have been competing against each other in most instances electorally 
And when we think of the broad divisions that have characterized the Lebanese political scene from 2005 until maybe 2014, 2015, by the March 8th and the March 14th blocks, we would put the Lebanese forces in the March 14th block and the Free Patriotic Movement in the March 8th block. So here is where we can see the ways in which these two groups act together to perpetuate the particular system, but then compete with one another within that system. In the case of the the resignation of Saad Hariri, you had General Secretary of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, come out and say that while he is sympathetic or supportive of the economic grievances of protesters, he does not believe the resignation of Saad Hariri's cabinet will be a good thing for the country. And that was a clear statement by him defying the protesters. Now, once he made that statement, it became clear that for those Lebanese political groups competing with Hezbollah, now shifting gears to getting Saad Hadri to resign while dealing a blow to the political class in the short term might deal a longer term blow to the prestige and political prowess of Hezbollah, right? So when we think of how the Lebanese regime responded to the protesters, I think we need to think about these complicated and multi-layered levels of analysis. That being said, I do think it's important to recognize that the Lebanese state did use violence. The violence never reached the levels of violence that took place in Iraq or Iran in recent protests there. But I believe that that difference is a function on the one hand of the capacity of the Lebanese security forces to engage in that type of violence on the one hand, but on the other hand, It has to do with the degree of existential threat the political class felt. I think you're only going to start killing people in the street if you feel you have to start killing people in the street. And if you feel you have the ability to kill people in the street. So you have to feel the need for it and you have to have the ability for it. I don't think what happened in Lebanon featured either of those two scenarios. And that's why we didn't see that. I don't put it beyond any member of the Lebanese political class to engage in that behavior if those two conditions were given, meaning they felt the need and they felt they had the capacity. But either one was missing or both of them were missing. And so we didn't see the violence rise to the level that we saw in Iraq and Iran. However, we did see for a lot of people an unprecedented level of violence. Some of the neighborhoods in which police and security forces confronted protesters and attempted to disperse protesters were completely covered in tear gas. I believe the Lebanese government itself at one point admitted that the water cannons that were being used had a type of liquid agent in them that acted to irritate the eyes and the skin, although they claimed it was temporary only. The attempt to arrest and subject those people detained to military prosecution rather than criminal or civilian court procedures shows us the types of tactics that the Lebanese state engaged in to repress the protesters. But I think the biggest problem with why we did not see that type of violence is the fact that there are constituencies of all the political parties that at some point or another participated in the protests. And I think that also played an important role 
in preventing the kind of persecution of that type of violence. So in Iran and Iraq, I think, and, and I would defer to the other guests you've had on your show that could speak to the situation in those countries, the violence was perpetrated against people that were clearly understood to not be the constituency of the regime. While the protests in Lebanon were a little more complicated, depending on when the protests were taking place, depending on where they were taking place, and depending on what the main demand of that particular protest was, we could very much and very easily have seen members of different groups. And in fact, for example, when the concentration of protesters gathered in front of the central bank in Beirut, we started to see protesters openly making calls in support of Hassan Nasrallah and Hezbollah and others to a much lesser degree, Nabih Birri and the Amal movement. But these individuals were clearly participating in the demonstrations. And we know that was the case with people from the Free Patriotic Movement and the Lebanese forces at different times and at different places. I'm talking about the rank and file. I'm not talking about the leadership. So that's a much more complicated picture in terms of how are we going to deal with these protesters. And the relationship of different political parties in the political elite to the question of corruption and to the question of the foreign currency crisis, and to the question of the developmental crisis and the infrastructure crisis is not even. Yes, all of them means all of them. But, you know, Saad Hariri and Nabih Birri, for a much longer time and, and to a very different extent, have played a very different role in the question of corruption, the question of undermining the state's fiscal capabilities than, say, the Lebanese forces or the free patriotic movement prior to them coming into power. So we also have this different constellation of relationships to the past 30 years. This is not to give anyone a pass, right? So even Hezbollah, who I would argue does not benefit directly financially from the type of corruption protesters have been speaking out against in the way that the ML movement or the future movement or even the free patriotic movement does, there can be no doubt that they have provided political cover, if not other forms of cover, for that type of corruption by their allies, most particularly Nabih Birli and the Amal movement. So this isn't about letting anyone off the hook, but it's about understanding their strategic positionality to the multiple layers of these protests, whether it's constituencies or the issues being called for in terms of fundamental change and how they navigate them. Can you talk about the rifts within the ruling bloc? You mentioned some of these differences in terms of their pursuit of class interests and their approach to the economy, as well as how to cope with the political crisis and the challenges posed by a grassroots protest movement to the economic and political status quo. Obviously, there are divisions that we could think of at what we could call the regional strategic divisions. If we think of the historic alliance between Hezbollah and Iran and the Iranian regime and the Syrian regime on the one hand, and we think of the historic alliance of Saad Hariri and the future movement with Saudi Arabia and the United States on the other hand. I mean, that is a clear, important division that manifests on multiple levels. We can think of the sectarian constituencies and divisions between again, using the example of Hezbollah and the future movement. But we can also think of intrasectarian divisions, as I mentioned earlier, the rivalry between the free patriotic movement and the Lebanese forces, and to a much lesser extent, the Kata'ib party 
with regards to the Maronite electorate, so to speak. So these are divisions that I think are important in one way or another. But I think there are other divisions that have to do with the political economy of Lebanon that we can think of. And here, one of the things we started to see in the last several weeks, if not months, is perhaps the willingness, if not the support on the part of Hezbollah and Amal to take aim at and focus at Riyad Salami, the head of the central bank in Lebanon, and the calls for criticizing and holding him responsible for the mismanagement of the banking sector and the foreign currency crisis in Lebanon. That has to do with a longer legacy of intra-elite rivalries and conflicts, which Riyad Salami was a part of previously. But it also might very well have to do with the fact that for Hezbollah and the Amal movement, their sources of income are less dependent on the banking sector. Their links to the banking sector are fundamentally different than, say, Saad Hariri and the Future Movement and the Kata'a Party and the Progressive Socialist Front of Walid Jublat and these other groups. So it depends on what level of analysis we're using. We could think of the regional strategic, we could think of the sectarian, we can even think of the economic. My claim is not that Hezbollah or Amal are any less neoliberal as okay. a political protagonist in Lebanon than any other members of the political elite in Lebanon. I think that is clearly not the case especially if you look at the kind of reconstruction and developmental patterns happening in areas of Lebanon, for better or worse, understood to be under the domain or control or influence of Hezbollah and Amal, right? Neoliberalism is happening everywhere in Lebanon, and every party is perpetuating it and reproducing from it. That being said, for example, we know that Hezbollah is largely dependent on the Iranian government and regime for its source of financial aid and financial support. It therefore had a different incentive structure in terms of engaging in rent-seeking, in corruption, than, say, the Amal movement has, which is allied with it, or, say, the Free Patriotic Movement or the Future Movement has. The role of Hezbollah in the banking sector, whatever it might have been, has been severely curtailed as a result of the U.S. sanctions regime against Hezbollah and against Iran within the banking sector in Lebanon. Again, this is not to deny the extremely problematic and at times violent role that Hezbollah has played in perpetuating the political system in Lebanon or providing cover when forming government in coalition with these other political parties. But it is to understand that we would need to look at each political group, each political leader within the political class and understand what their sources of revenue and funding are. Saad al-Hariri has historically been much more dependent on Saudi Arabia than his counterparts have been. Other groups have been much more dependent on other allies, either within the Lebanese business community or outside of the Lebanese business community. And I think we need to take these differences into account, not just to understand the strategic nature and weaknesses and pressure points for each of these political groups, 
but to understand why and how they might respond differently to the range of demands of the protesters and therefore be able to play those demands off of one another at the end of the day. So just to give a different example, we would have to think of the importance of the Beirut airport to Hezbollah in a very different way than the Beirut airport is important to Saad Hariri and the future movement. And perhaps we can think of the banking sector and real estate in relation to Saad Hariri as opposed to the border with Syria and the airport to Hezbollah. So again, we need to think about the strategic institutional and economic relationships that each of these groups have. And we should be clear that as far as we're concerned, all of these groups have made clear at one point or another that they were against a fundamental transformation of the political system and economic system in Lebanon. We have clear evidence that supporters of Hezbollah and Amal, if not members in one way or another, were at the forefront initially and at different times attempting to break up, disperse, or intimidate protesters in Beirut and other parts of the country. So regardless of what I might say about the difference of the relationship of different political groups to the banking sector and the centrality of the banking sector to the multiple crises happening in Lebanon, we can't turn a blind eye or ignore the role of these other groups and what they've been able to accomplish in alliance with these other groups. Let's talk about the role played by these regional and international powers. There are Iran, Saudi Arabia, Israel, United States, and Syria. Are we missing any other parties? Different groups in Lebanon and politicians have different relationships to different governments. So I think we can't not talk about France, for example, although I think France has been embroiled in its own protest movements in the country. But yeah, I think the list you talk about is very important. I can perhaps sketch out some of the interests that seem to be guiding and motivating them. I I think uh, the end game is not clear simply because I think people are still trying to come to terms with what this new government actually is, what is the current state of the protest movement, and where does the political elite stand in terms of its degree of unity or disunity. To say nothing of the fact that many people are genuinely concerned about the impending economic collapse of Lebanon, if not to declare it to have already collapsed. But, you know, immediately, I think we can already think about Saudi Arabia and the United States on one side of the regional strategic axis and the Iranian regime and the Syrian regime on the other. I think we know that, for example, the United States under the Trump administration is pursuing a maximum pressure policy on the Iranian regime. They self-admit this fact. So the idea that they would try to score points against Iran in Lebanon in the context of these uprisings and protests is very clear. We don't know what that looks like yet. We will have to wait and see. With regards to Saudi Arabia, There were initial indications that as soon as Hassan Nasrallah of Hezbollah came out and said that he opposes the resignation of the cabinet as a response to the demands of the protesters, that the Saudi regime and other allies started to try and put pressure on their longtime collaborator Saad al-Hariri to actually resign and try to deal Hezbollah a blow. So we have that example 
amongst others. At the same time, Saudi Arabia's relationship with Saad Hariri has been strained, though they have been unable to find a substitute collaborator for themselves in Lebanon. And I think that dynamic is playing out. With regards to the Syrian regime and the Iranian regime, I think their interests are also quite clear. These are regimes that are not interested in the potential legitimation of popular protests. These are regimes that would like to normalize violent response to protesters, as has been the case in both of those places. And these are regimes that have their backs against the wall because of the United States maximum pressure policy. So it is not surprising that they would support their allies in Lebanon in the way they have, although very differently, right? The Syrian regime is not able to do in Lebanon what the Syrian regime used to do simply because of what's been happening in Syria since 2011. The Iranian regime has, ironically, or I don't even know if irony is the right word to describe it, claimed that it is willing to help support Lebanon financially. The chair of Iranian parliament, Majlis, there was a statement made by him as he traveled to Lebanon saying that Iran is willing to uh, rescue Lebanon from its financial crisis. Now, that happened at a very particular moment. Since then, you've had the disastrous spread due to a disastrous response by the Iranian regime of the coronavirus. And I believe at some point, I read that the Iranian regime is seeking financial assistance from the International Monetary Fund to help fund its response to the coronavirus. So it's not clear to me what funds it has available to support Lebanon. But the fact that it offered to do so at a particular time shows that itself is also seeking to make gains given the current situation. And I think that's important to point out. So nothing that happens in Lebanon can happen in the absence of these regional and international powers' interests and struggles against each other. But I think one of the most important and powerful dynamics that took place in Lebanon is that just like the protests in Lebanon and the the uprising in Lebanon was able to reject and rebuff the attempt to play the sectarian card to divide up the protesters, they have largely been successful, I think, also at rebuffing or denying the attempt to play the regional strategic card from either camp, uh, for that matter. Now, whether they're able to continue to be able to do so as successfully as they had in the first several months is the thing to look out for when we're talking about your question, which has to do with the regional and international dynamics of, of what's happening. And that will play out on the one part in terms of how certain regional and international governments might offer aid in the form of grants and loans, but also what these governments' positions might be with regards to the potential involvement of the International Monetary Fund and what conditionalities they might put in place, let alone what role these governments will play in backing or supporting foreign euro bond holders as Lebanon defaults again, if it chooses to do so. And of course, this is to say nothing of Israel, which I would put in the camp of the United States and Saudi Arabia. We know that they have been quite public, that they hope and plan to deal Hezbollah a final blow 
after their disastrous intervention and destruction of many parts of Lebanon in 2006. But what exactly their role has been so far is not clear. And that's not to say that they're not playing a role or any other country isn't playing a role. But I think this is a particularly complicated time for most of these external actors because they're also engaged in intense internal strife and struggle themselves. If we think of the intra-regime rivalries happening in Saudi Arabia with Mohammed bin Salman and the new wave of arrests, if we think of the corruption allegations and election challenges of Benjamin Netanyahu, if we think of the coronavirus and the protesters in Iran, let alone the assassination of Qasem Soleimani and maximum pressure, we could go on and on with this list and see that the timing of the uprising in Lebanon, combined with everything else going on, is making it harder, I think, to focus and understand what these external players are doing. But I think the historical record makes clear the United States is not going to do anything different than the United States has done. The same for Saudi Arabia, the same for Israel, the same for Iran, and the same for the Syrian regime. We should be clear on that. That is Professor Ziad Aburish speaking with Shahram Aghamir about the economic crisis in Lebanon and the mass protest movement in the country. Coming up after the break, Professor Aburish continues his conversation with Shahram Aghamir by discussing the coronavirus outbreak in Lebanon and how the country is coping with this global pandemic. For a status, I am Malihe Razazan. Ziad, I wanted to switch gears and ask you about another crisis in the region which has also found its way to Lebanon, as well as almost all countries in the Middle East and North Africa region, and that is coronavirus global pandemic. Can you give us an update of what is happening in Lebanon? Yeah, absolutely, Sharam. In fact, just a couple of hours ago before our interview, the Ministry of Public Health gave its daily briefing on the COVID-19 situation here in Lebanon and has reported that now the count is at 149 cases, with 16 new cases being discovered between yesterday's daily briefing and today's daily briefing. And to give you a sense, yesterday they had announced 13 new cases. So we're seeing between 10 and 15 on average new cases per day here in Lebanon. The situation is uh, much like the rest of uh, the Middle East and the world, with the government slowly playing catch up to the reality of this pandemic and this situation. Just so you know, it was on February 21st of 2020 that the first case of COVID-19 was reported in Lebanon, and it was on March 10th that the first death 
as a result of COVID-19 was uh, reported. The government has uh, taken a variety of measures, though slow to act, now has implemented a number of them. It began by uh, requiring temperature checks at the airport as people disembarked from their airplanes and uh, prior to them going through passport control. It escalated to school closures for nurseries, primary and secondary schools and universities. There is now a ban on large gatherings. Subsequently, there was an ordered closure of all restaurants, cafes and bars, with the exception of delivery services. Initially, there was a travel restriction imposed on countries that were identified to be quote-unquote highly affected by the COVID-19, but now that travel restriction has been more generalized to uh, stop all travel. In fact, yesterday there were reports from journalists that Rafiq Hariri International Airport was completely empty and that on the flight monitors, all flights were listed as canceled. So you can see that while slow to respond, the government has engaged in a series of measures in some ways similar to the measures we've seen in other countries and in in some ways not. So, for example, communal religious services continue to happen in Lebanon, as opposed to in Jordan, where there was a decision made by the uh, Muslim and Christian leadership to stop communal religious services in the mosques and churches. However, different mosques and churches in Lebanon have taken their own precautions to mitigate supposedly the spread of COVID-19 while continuing with their collective services. That's the general picture of what's happening here in Lebanon. Initially, the Ministry of Public Health had only licensed one hospital as the primary center for testing for COVID-19, and that was Rafiq Hariri University Hospital. And as of yesterday, March 18th, it had conducted 2,756 tests and had identified 88 people who were positive for COVID-19. And today, the following day, the total number of cases is 149 positive positive cases. So they're doing about 300 to 400 tests a day and have allocated about 140 beds for a specified zone to care for those patients suspected or confirmed to have covid 19. But since that initial licensing, at least four other hospitals, mainly university hospitals, such as the American University of Beirut and other university hospitals, have also received licenses to be able to test for COVID-19. But because these are private hospitals, the government imposed a cap of 150,000 liras which, if we follow official exchange rate, is equivalent to $100 as the cap for testing in the private hospitals. And the government uh, has claimed to pursue a policy of dedicating at least one ward in each governorate of Lebanon to make sure that at least one of the public hospitals in each governorate is going to be equipped with the ability to contain, house, and care for COVID-19 patients. That's the kind of large statistical overview of where things stand today. 
In addition to the government measures that I've mentioned, there is an effective social distancing policy, although I think the more appropriate term is physical distancing policy that is in place. For example, the Beirut Municipal Police was out in the streets uh, the last couple of days telling pedestrians walking on the Beirut Corniche that they needed to clear the Corniche. Police and security forces have been seen in other parts of Beirut and the country requiring people that are not actively engaging uh, supermarkets, uh, pharmacies or hospitals or other necessary movement to return to their homes. There's not an official ban on being out in public, but the combination of government measures along with people's concerns about the situation have really created uh, scenes of, of empty streets in, in many other parts of the country. Have the Lebanese officials been able to identify how this virus actually entered the country? Yes, the virus has apparently entered the country through several different sources. Initially, the first and second cases that were reported in Lebanon were cases of passengers that were arriving into Beirut from Iran, and particularly, I believe, from Qom. These passengers apparently were screened either upon arrival or shortly after arrival, and that was when the first patient was identified. However, since then, as we discussed earlier, we have 149 positive cases in Lebanon, and they cannot all be traced to the passenger flight arriving from Iran. In fact, other cases have been traced to passengers arriving from Italy, either directly or via the United Kingdom. And I believe there are a few other places that these cases have been traced to. So you can imagine, uh, given the politicized nature of the relationship of different groups in Lebanon to Iran, there was a great deal of concern that flights from Iran were not stopped immediately once the situation in Iran was known to people in Lebanon and to the government in Lebanon. Flights have since been stopped, but not before certain patients arrived in Lebanon with COVID-19. Not all of them Lebanese, as some critics of this policy would point out. But I think it's also important to point out that of the 149 cases, a number of them have been traced to other sources since then. And so we could say that the government was quite late to react in general, whether it was with regards to flights from Iran, flights from Italy, or flights from elsewhere in the country. Can you give us an overview of Lebanon's healthcare system? In the course of our conversation, we have been talking about multiple infrastructure crises in Lebanon. Can you talk about the healthcare system? Yes, absolutely. I think the most important element of the public healthcare system in Lebanon is to understand two primary characteristics of it. First of all, it is mostly curative rather than preventative. So meaning that most of the investment in the public health care system is designed to cure illnesses and ameliorate uh, symptoms and conditions 
rather than to engage in a preventative health care. And this, of course, is bearing out in how difficult it is to set up the infrastructure for the screening of potential COVID-19 patients. The other characteristic of the public health care system in Lebanon is how highly privatized it is. And I mean this in two senses. First of all, there are far more private hospitals than there are public hospitals, not just in Beirut, but almost in every governorate in Lebanon. And in fact, if you count all the hospital beds in Lebanon, 85% of them are private hospital beds as opposed to 15% of them are public hospital beds. And relatedly to this highly privatized nature is that the Ministry of Public Health actually contracts out many of the required services for the public health care system with private hospitals. In fact, uh, according to one estimate, only 1.8% of the budget of the Ministry of Public Health is actually spent on public hospitals, with over 80% of the budget of the Ministry of Public Health spent on private hospitals and pharmaceuticals, giving you an indication of the degree of privatization and subcontracting that the public health care system has undergone as part of the reconstruction and post-war period in Lebanon, which, as we discussed earlier, is actually very much in line with the kind of economic policies that have put in place in Lebanon. So here we can see the coming together of the broader set of economic policies and the capacities or nature of response of the government to the COVID-19 situation. I should also like to point out that Lebanon is currently undergoing a shortage of supplies and equipment. This is partly a result of its general unpreparedness for a pandemic such as the COVID-19, But this general unpreparedness is compounded by the economic crisis, which we spoke about earlier, and in particular, the foreign currency shortage that Lebanon is experiencing. According to one estimate, Lebanon, prior to the foreign currency crisis, used to import about $20 million worth of equipment and pharmaceuticals per month. Apparently, in the last several months, due to foreign currency shortage, that number has been halved to 10 million US dollars in pharmaceuticals and equipments. And very recently, the World Bank has extended $120 million to Lebanon to assist in this broader economic crisis, $39 million of which the Ministry of Public Health is going to designate for the COVID-19 response. And of course, this is to get nothing into the issue of the availability of respirators, and beds. According to one estimate, there are technically 850 respirators in Lebanon. Only 750 of them are in working condition, 500 of which are designated for regular patients, 250 of which have been designated for COVID-19 patients. So if we follow the trends that are happening regionally and globally, Shahram, about 20% of COVID-19 patients are uh, experiencing respiratory distress and need some type of assistance with the use of a ventilator or other medical supplies. If the current trend continues and the statistics are true that we only have 250 respirators available 
here in Lebanon. What that means is that as soon as the number of COVID-19 patients hits around 1,000, Lebanon might reach its capacity in terms of its ability to provide respirators for those in need of them. So you can see that while certain measures have been taking place, while some people say that the acceleration curve of the number of patients testing positive in Lebanon is better overall than many other countries, we can see that the system in place itself has already a number of strains that it's facing and constraints that should the COVID-19 reach a certain level, we can imagine a much more dire crisis than is already the case. How can Lebanon cope and hand in another crisis when it's grappling with an unprecedented economic crisis? That is the current debate that is ongoing. I think what we're seeing in Lebanon is a government that is attempting to respond in the best way it knows how. But as we've discussed, the problem in Lebanon is that most people in government and most policies that are implemented in the government are usually not driven by long-term concerns with the well-being of the population. In this particular situation, a number of measures that needed to be taken have been taken, but we can almost be certain that at some point such attempts are going to come up against the structural constraints that the Lebanese elite have imposed on themselves here in Lebanon. And we are starting to see some of these divisions and issues emerge, Shahram. So, for example, in the government's decision to require restaurants, cafes and bars to close down and a number of other services, It stipulated in the state of emergency that it declared that essential services should continue to provide those services, and it had in mind the banking sector. However, the Bankers Association in Lebanon, just a few hours before the statement of the government, had actually issued its own statement saying that it would close the banks for the next two weeks. And what we saw in Lebanon until yesterday was a back and forth negotiation between the government and the banking sector, trying to find a middle ground between the two of them, where the banks wanted to, in many ways, take advantage of the current situation to justify full closure for two weeks, and where the government understood the potential risks this posed to the population and how it might undermine the government's own claim to be a reformist government. So what the banks did is that they ended up closing for Monday and Tuesday. They will open on Wednesday, both in their central offices and a select number of branches, not all branches. So once again, here you see the interplay between the economic situation, the COVID-19 pandemic, and some of the issues that were raised by protesters and activists. There are nearly 2 million non-Lebanese citizens in Lebanon, Palestinian, Syrian refugees, and refugees from some other countries, in addition to quite a large number of migrant workers. What is happening to these vulnerable groups in light of this pandemic? How are they being impacted? That's a great question, Shahram. And unfortunately, the majority of media attention and majority of statements by public officials have not really provided us with any insight into what's going on in these refugee communities and in the domestic migrant worker communities. For example, are refugee communities eligible 
to access the public hospitals for COVID-19 testing. I'm pretty sure that many within these communities would find the 150,000 lira cap to be beyond their reach, even if they were able to access one of the four other hospitals beyond Rafiq Hariri University Hospital. We should also remember that as families and homes quarantine themselves, that many domestic migrant workers that live with families have had their movement curtailed. And we are unclear if that's happening by choice or against their will. And of course, the very problem of the policy of social distancing is that much harder in densely populated areas, uh, such as refugee camps. The problem of accessing sanitary water and a supply of soap, putting aside the issue of sanitizers, is much more uh, difficult in refugee camps. And we should remember that the Palestinian refugee camps, many of them are militarized spaces where the Lebanese army maintains checkpoints and controls the movement of people and goods in and out. We have not yet seen any public statement that the government will guarantee the ability of people and goods to move in and out adequately to address the COVID-19 epidemic. We know that several agencies that work with refugee populations in Lebanon have put out pleas for financial support and other forms of solidarity and assistance. But as tends to be the case in mainstream Lebanese politics, these communities have been marginalized, not just economically and politically, but even in the discussions and statements revolving around the COVID-19 response plan. We just don't have enough information. And I tried to find some of that information out. And unfortunately, beyond what individuals and organizations within the camps are saying, we see very little coming out of the Lebanese government. What has been the impact of this pandemic on the protest movement and the regime opposition dynamic in general? And how do you see it develop in the coming months? Well, you know, we talked briefly about how initially there was an attempt by various activist groups to mobilize around March 8th, International Women's Day, and how a majority of them decided to pull out of that uh, call for mobilization and the protest out of concerns because of the COVID-19 epidemic and wanting to be responsible and not bringing large crowds together that might facilitate the further spread of COVID-19. But overall, as is the case in many other parts of the world, including the UC Santa Cruz graduate student strike, protests in other parts of the U.S., Europe, and elsewhere, the most immediate effect of COVID-19 has been to clear the streets. And this isn't only because governments and those in power are taking advantage of the situation to help clear the streets, but this is because also activists who are putting people's interests at the heart of their decision-making processes are self-determining that they need to clear the streets to help mitigate the spread of COVID-19 and address it. So I think the most immediate effect is a clearing of the streets and a seeding of the ground, if you will. Whether these activists and protesters will be able to reclaim where they were vis-a-vis -vis the government prior to COVID-19 is yet to be seen, but by many accounts, 
we, not just in Lebanon, but around the region and the world, are going to be in this situation for quite a while. There's no sense yet of how fundamentally that balance of power between protesters and the government is going to change. That being said, it's not like these activist networks and protesters have just disappeared. They have been switching gears into helping spread information about COVID-19, about the government response, about what are the best practices, about where are the hospitals. So this infrastructure of activist networks that was created prior to and primarily through the Lebanese uprising is now being mobilized as part of the broader independent public response to COVID-19. We've seen uh, certain scenarios in which mutual aid groups have been set up, We've seen other scenarios in which activists are trying to shift the spotlight to the government response, to push the government to respond even more aggressively in ways that it could, to highlight how the lack of funding for the Ministry of Public Health and how the overall privatization is undermining Lebanon's ability to properly address the COVID-19 situation and how this is part and parcel of the broader set of grievances that the protesters and activists have been decrying. So it's a very complicated response, I think, but one that on the one hand involves intentional engagement by these protesters and activists, but on the other hand, it has eliminated the most immediate and fundamental strategy that was available to these activists and protesters, which is to claim the streets, as we discussed earlier. I think we're yet to see what that means in the long haul and how the COVID-19 epidemic and the government response and how well or not well that response is received will affect the broader public grievances in this country. Ziad Aburish is an assistant professor of Middle East history and founding director of the Middle East and North Africa Studies program at Ohio University. He is a co-director of Jadalia Izin and currently a research fellow at the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies in Beirut. He spoke with Shahram Agamir from Beirut, Lebanon. To hear this interview in its entirety, please visit statushour.com.